Good morning. It's lovely to be with you guys. Uh, it's, it's great to be back, actually. It's been a number of years since I've gotten to be with you all. Um, two or three years, I think, in fact. And so I, I apologize for being the guest teacher this morning. You know, you, you get up here and you're like, oh, I can't wait for Wayne. He's going to be great. And then, oh, it's <laughs> some guy I've never heard of. Fantastic. So I understand what it's like, like I could have slept in this morning, oh my gosh, but anyway, I really am glad to be with you. It's a, it's a thrill to be here. Wayne is a dear friend of mine, and I really do uh, enjoy um, teaching, so this worked out great. So here we are. Um, I, as, as Jeremy mentioned, I am in a bit of transition in my life. Uh, I've been working at Pine Cove for the past 12 years, and my wife and I have just recently moved to Fort Worth, uh, very recently, in fact, uh, not just three weeks ago. So we are very much in the transition uh, right now. Um, we, in fact, have moved in with her parents. It's very millennial of us. Um, so we're uh, living with them and, you know, grown man living with my in-laws and um, uh, waiting for our home to be built, but at the same time, also waiting for our house to sell back in Tyler. And that's been a, a source of some considerable difficulty for us. It's been about 120 days now uh, that our house has been on the market. And when Wayne called about three weeks ago asking me to teach, uh, I didn't know anywhere else to go but James chapter one, because this is quite a trial for us. You know, we're in this in-between stage and our house is a great house. It should have sold by now and it hasn't sold. And so now I'm starting to wring my hands and get really worried because we're building a house and it's not ready yet. And we have to tell us sell it, but it's already closed. You know how it goes. Anyway, um, so I'm thinking, you know, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And I'm thinking, yeah, this is, this is such a trial. And then Harvey happened. I'm like, oh, this really changes things. I'd spent, I'd spent two weeks prepping and, and kind of preparing uh, what I was going to say. And when I watched what happened this week happen on television, as many of us all did, I had to go back through my sermon again and go, does this still work? Would I be willing to say the same things if the congregation was filled of people that had just been through the biggest hurricane the United States has ever seen. So it's given me a lot of pause this week. Um, and so I hope that what I have to say encourages those of you who are and have family members that have been involved, but also, I also know there's probably lots of difficulty in this room between all of us. And so I hope it's an encouragement to you this morning. Um, our text this morning will be James chapter 1, uh, will be verses 2 through 8. So if you guys want to go ahead and and start turning there. Um, I'll have it up here on the screen here for you. Um, I'll give you a few points of background on the text just, just to give us a little bit of orientation um, before we begin. Um, James is the author, obviously. Um, it, it's not as obvious as to which James it is, though, because there are three Jameses that we're familiar with in the New Testament. You have James, the brother of John, who is the son of Zebedee. You have James, the son of Alphaeus, and then you have James, the half-brother of Jesus, who ends up being the uh, lead elder and the leader of the church in Jerusalem um, in the book of Acts um, that Paul has some interaction with. I believe this to be the James um, of the Jerusalem church. And shortly after the stoning of Stephen, um, when he is martyred for the faith, uh, many 
Jewish people who had come to place their faith in Jesus were scattered all throughout um, the ancient Near East. Um, several had already been scattered prior to that. And I believe that this is James's letter to them, primarily Jewish believers, um, encouraging them on how to live out their life wherever they are. In particular, how to, um, in chapter one in particular, how to handle trials as they come. So that's where we're going to be this morning. So if you found James chapter one, I'm going to be reading from um, the New American Standard Version this morning. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. May God bless the preaching of his word. Um, just uh, a few weeks ago, I attended the funeral for my friend Bobby Miller. Uh, this is a picture of he and his wife uh, when they went to Israel with us a number of years ago. Um, Bobby's a good man. I don't know if you have people in your life where you come into contact with them, you have breakfast or lunch, or you have them over to your house, and you can't, they, they're always talking about the scriptures, they're always talking about Jesus. You're going to know that Bobby loves Christ and he loves the scriptures. And um, during the funeral, I was uh, sitting there listening to one of his sons uh, give the eulogy, and he told the story of how he told his family that he had... Um, stage four terminal prostate cancer. He gathered the family around the table and he uh, had his Bible out, always had his Bible with him. He had his Bible out in front of him and he sat down and, and he looked at the family. They knew, they knew he was sick. Um, they knew he wasn't doing well. They assumed that uh, it was cancer, but the C word hadn't really been used yet. And he looked at them in the eyes and he said, I've got good news. I have cancer, and I'm going to die. And I sat there at the funeral of my friend, and I'm going, first of all, that's definitely what Bobby would have said. Like, I knew, like, that once I heard it, I was like, that's Bobby. That's exactly his perspective on almost everything in his life. But the other side of me, the skeptical side of me is like, he doesn't really believe that. I mean, nobody believes that. I mean, can you really say that when you're facing? I mean, he, he, he fought and he, he made it nine months. And then I'm watching pictures of people on television. And I'm watching pictures of them and I see videos of people saying that they're, they're blessed. That they're thankful. Like, yeah, that's the right thing to say. But is it? Do you really mean it? Is it really genuine? That, so that's kind of where I sat in the funeral. And as I watched his son eulogize him and admired his courage and all these things, it dawned on me suddenly. <laughs> Never once 
in the past 120 days have I thought to call it good that my house hasn't sold. Never once have I thought to look at it with the perspective of saying, perhaps God is in this. Perhaps there's something that I can gain from it. All I did was complain about how inconvenient it was, wring my hands and worry and try to control the situation to try to get my house sold. And all it brought me was more anxiety. Never once had it occurred to me to consider it a good thing. Now James is going to make the case that this kind of perspective on the difficulties and trials we face in our life isn't just fanciful. It isn't just the right answer. It isn't just some sort of wishful thinking or psychological game. That it's a legitimate perspective. And I'm going to agree with him. But I also understand there's skepticism that comes with it. So before we get any further, I want to make a few things clear to us this morning. I will not make the suggestion that this text, or any of the scriptures for that matter, make difficult circumstances less difficult or painful circumstances less painful. I want to make sure that's clear from the beginning. Nor does this passage suggest that we should go looking for difficulties in life in order to grow. The Bible does not teach masochism. I'm hoping this morning that what we can do is we can take this passage out of the cliche that it has kind of become, oh, just count it all joy, and move it into the glorious gospel truth that it is for us as believers in Jesus. Okay? So my two key ideas this morning, if you don't listen to anything else, these are the two things you can write down and go home and say, I paid attention. Uh, We must appraise our difficulties by what we trust God for rather than appraising them by what we can control. We must appraise our difficulties by what we trust God for rather than what we can control because faith cannot grow to maturity without being proven in difficulty. Faith cannot grow to maturity without being proven in difficulty. So let's look at this text and consider just for a few moments that rejoicing in the face of difficulty, in the face of trouble, is a legitimate perspective. It's not wishful thinking, but the truest indicator that faith in Jesus is genuine. Let's look at verse 2. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. James here starts with his conclusion. We have a choice about how we feel about the trials that we face, he says. And he's encouraging his readers to choose a joyful perspective on their circumstances. Now, when I encounter trouble, when I encounter trial, I typically choose anger or anxiety. Those are my go-tos. Oh, why doesn't this just work? Oh, this is so frustrating. Like, I don't know, man, if you can relate to that. I typically default to anger or I get really just kind of wringing my hands worried. I usually, the thought of being joyful never crosses my mind. 
But then I read James 1, I'm like, oh. So his conclusion seems a little far-fetched here at the beginning, but he's going to substantiate that conclusion through the way that he walks us through the next several verses. What does James mean by the trials, the various trials that he's talking about? Is he talking about persecution? Not only, he's talking about any kind of difficulty in life, any kind of trouble in life. And from a dead car battery this morning to not being able to sell your house for 120 days to a serious illness to the greatest flood in U.S. history, even being persecuted for your faith, all qualify for application in this verse. But they each, the trouble itself has kind of three categories that it falls into. First, all these troubles tend to be those that are outside our immediate control. We can't do anything about them right away. They typically wouldn't be regarded as joyful things by most. And they require a choice of perspective. That's what James means um, to suggest here. So he's saying for our first point this morning that life is full of difficulties. Choose wisely how you see them. So for James... His readers might not be able to choose the difficulties that they encounter in life, but they can choose how they see them. And here's what makes his perspective reasonable. He gives kind of two reasons here. Let's look here at verses three and four. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James wants to transform the perspective of his readers, but it's very difficult to convince someone that difficulty or trouble or pain is a valuable thing. That takes some pretty strong convincing. He's going to give us two points here for why it's valuable. The first one says, difficulties have value because they prove our faith. Difficulties have value because they prove our faith. He says, the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, where I come from, tests generally aren't considered valuable things, Um, especially math tests. I was an English major in college. I don't do math. So whenever a math test would come, that was bad news. But even schooling aside, like not even in school, if I were to tell you right now that I was testing you and you didn't know it until right now, that I'm secretly testing all of you to see what you will do, everybody goes, what is it? I don't know. Do I have the right answer? Am I going to pass? What does it mean? I don't know. It's never considered a compliment. It's never considered like, oh, this is such a great thing. I'm so glad he's testing us right now. Fantastic. I love tests. We don't think about tests that way. It's just not our norm, especially when tests are very difficult or very painful or very troubling. But we also, we also don't want to imagine a life without tests, do we? I mean, I'm sure several of you flew on an airplane within the past week. Do we want to imagine a world where there's no tests for airline pilots. I mean, you have, they have to take tests, they have to take, you know, so many hours in the cockpit, and they have to prove 
that they are capable to fly an aircraft. And if they fail those tests, they take them again and again and again until they master them. And then they are so proven. But what if they never took a test? Could we even call them a pilot? If they haven't been proven? I mean, they can wear the duds, but are they, without being tested, are they that thing? And would you get on their airplane? (laughs) That would be another indicator. How about architecture? This is a nice bridge. It's a pretty bridge. I like it. It's an old one. Some of you may even recognize this, this footage. This bridge is called the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. And in 1940, I want a 35-mile-an-hour wind did this to that bridge. Just 35 miles an hour. That's it. And as you can see here, oops. When does a bridge become a bridge? It could, be a, it could look good, but until a car drives across it, until it can bear the weight of any load that drives across it and, and withstand the, the, the weather that is around it also, apparently, can we really call it what it is? Has it been proven to be what it claims to be? We're very much the same way, you and I. We claim to be followers of Jesus. But when the rubber meets the road and life gets tough, where does our faith turn? Where do we go when life gets hard? When trials come, do we still believe that God is trustworthy? That's the first reason why why tests of faith are valuable. Our faith cannot be proven genuine until it's been tested. That's it. Tests may be hard, tests may be painful, tests may be very difficult, but tests always prove what you believe about God. Always. They bring it to the surface like metal refined by fire. And for James, because he's writing to believers in Jesus, he has no doubt in his mind that when trials come, their faith will be proven genuine. And any time that faith is proven genuine, it always produces endurance. That's the second reason why James says that tests are so valuable. Because the proving of our faith is valuable because it matures our faith. The proving of our faith is valuable because it matures our faith. He says, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. The testing of our faith produces endurance, and if we allow the cycle to continue over multiple difficulties, it will eventually lead to a mature faith where we lack nothing. So, two things uh, on this section that we want to emphasize here one on this word endurance, and the other one on the concept of what it means to be mature in faith. First, endurance. Tests don't lead to failure. They lead to endurance. 
This word for endurance is a very strong word in the Greek. It's not just about physical endurance and how long or hard or fast you can go. Um, it, it can mean that, but it's not its only scope. It, it is also more so the ability to be stayed, to be immovable, especially when pressures come upon you to move, that you will not bend or break. It's to have uh, an inner security such that nothing can move you from where you are planted, from where you stand, and that you could stand there for a long, long time. That's what this word endurance means, a faith that produces that kind of endurance. So, how do we learn to trust God, to have a faith that endures like that? I'm telling you, it's not just by Bible study. It's by facing circumstances in life that cause us to question God's trustworthiness. And when we choose to trust him, even when our life circumstances are really hard, when we choose to trust him and we experience his deliverance, we look back in hindsight and that does something to our faith. It gives us hope and strength to endure the next time. And on and on and on. That is how faith matures, not just through study, but also by circumstances that test our trust. Just like an athlete. An athlete who's tested game after game, season after season. The athlete may not win every game, like certain universities that are green and white um, and had a hard time yesterday, who shall remain nameless. But they have a, a hard time. But even in a, in a time when you lose as an athlete, when you, when you don't win, that does something to you as an athlete. You should either grow from that and get better, or it's going to send you in a downward spiral and you won't become better. Even for an athlete, their perspective on their adversity does something when things get tough. It helps them to endure. The result of an endurance of faith is becoming mature and complete, lacking in nothing. This doesn't mean that we become know-it-alls. Just because I went through a really tough time doesn't mean that I know everything. This isn't cognitive. The maturity that James is talking about here is a faith, a maturity of faith, not of intellect. Maturity of faith looks just like Jesus in the garden where the weight of all of our sin is encroaching upon him and the wrath of God, he knows, is about to be poured out upon him. And in the midst of that difficulty, he says, not my will, but yours be done. He trusts God. Even when it's really hard, even when it's really painful, that's a faith that sees difficulty as an opportunity or an occasion for joy rather than anxiety. 
Which brings us back to verse 2 again, where we started. This brings us to the conclusion that we started with. I think James has been pretty convincing, to be perfectly honest. He says in verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. This is how joy is possible, even in the midst of trouble, even in the midst of pain, and how it's not fake. It's not wishful thinking. It's not just the right answer that you're supposed to say when the camera's in your face. But that it's real and genuine and you mean it down in your bones. It's a legitimate perspective for difficult circumstances. And I'm telling you guys, this is a perspective the world knows nothing about. You've been watching the news coverage, and I'm telling you, that news coverage you've been watching has shaped your perspective on this disaster on the, on the Texas Gulf Coast. They're talking to you about billions of dollars. They're talking to you about all these people that have been displaced and the cost of rebuilding and how awful and terrible it is. And it is awful and terrible. But I've seen video after video, not on CNN, video after video of believer after believer with a smile on their face saying, I am blessed. I thank God. Thinking, why isn't this on the news? The world doesn't know anything about pain and difficulty and struggle and how to handle it. This world tells you to find somebody to sue if it doesn't go your way. The world tells you to escape your pain, to embrace victimhood, to be entitled to an easy life, to try and control and manipulate things that you can't control and manipulate. But the believer in Jesus knows and understands that there will be trouble in life. We're not surprised by it. I don't need my life to be trouble-less for it to be good. I don't need there to be no pain in my life for it to be joyful. Instead of avoiding it or worrying about it, the believer in Jesus chooses to see these difficulties as opportunities for growth rather than circumstances to escape. That's why this is the only command in this passage. The only command. Consider. That's the verb. That's the only thing James is giving them instruction to do. Consider. It means have an opinion about the trials that you face. Choose how you will encounter them. Not because you know what the trial is going to be. Not because you think you can handle it, but because you believe and you trust in the God who is bigger than any trial you could ever face. That's why you can choose joy. Not because you have it all figured out. And the classic story of the castaway, Robinson Crusoe. Do you guys know this book? The first English novel, and if, if this was Wayne, he would do it in some British accent, and he would, you know, read it to you, and I can't do that. Uh, Wayne's way better at those things than I am. But he tells a story, the, the book Robinson Crusoe, written in the 1700s, 
But it, it, um, a British novel, and it tells a story of a man who was marooned on an island, had to make a way for himself, and you get to kind of read his journal of his experience and how his perspective on his life changes as a result of this trial. Look at the conclusion that he comes to um, in the midst of this book. So little do we see before us in the world, and so much reason have we to depend cheerfully upon the great maker of the world, that he does not leave his creatures so absolutely destitute, but that in the worst circumstances, they have always something to be thankful for, and sometimes are nearer their deliverance than they imagine, nay, are even brought to their deliverance by the means by which they seem to be brought to their destruction. If you've heard of uh, the author Philip Yancey, he uh, talks in a book about how he has, uh, how would would it be possible if you were there to witness Jesus' miracles, how would you not just believe? If you saw someone rise from the dead or a blind man be cured of his sight, why wouldn't you just automatically just believe? Some people even today say, well, if Jesus would just come back, do some miracles, the whole world would believe in him. Yancey says this, the miracles did just what Jesus had predicted. To those who choose to believe in him, they gave even more reason to believe. But for those determined to deny him, the miracles made little difference. Some things just have to be believed to be seen. So the last point here this morning is we need to look to embrace each difficulty rather than escape it. We can embrace each difficulty rather than escaping it because we trust that God will use it. He will refine us through it. So what does this look like in the really difficult times? If your home has flooded, if you have terminal cancer, if you still can't get another interview, if you don't know what course to take and it's, and it's weighing on your soul, these are moments when we must make the conscious choice to choose to trust God or not. So when that feels difficult to do, I see here three points of application that James gives us starting here in verse five. Number one, he says, Ask for God's perspective. Ask God for his perspective. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach and it will be given to him. When he says wisdom here, again, it's not intellectual. Wisdom in the Bible tends to be more or less the perspective that God has on a situation rather than the perspective that I would have on a situation. Ask God for his perspective. And when you do, it allows you to see things from his perspective and trust him and his perspective for the next time around. But, of course, James says there is a catch. You have to let go of your own perspective. But he must ask in faith without any doubting For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. 
being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The catch is, you can't ask God for his perspective while still hanging on to your own. You guys ever had a friend come to you and say, I really think I should do this, but I want to get your advice. Do you think I should do this? And you're like, well, I think you should do this. And then you find out a couple days later, he went and did this anyway. You're like, why did you ask me? What was the point of that? That's what James is communicating here. James isn't saying that you must ask in some certain state of mind where you don't have any doubts. That's not what he's saying. James says, if you want to trust God, then trust God. Don't hang on to your other perspective. You got to stick with it. You can't waver back and forth between two perspectives. Otherwise, you'll be double-minded. You'll be unstable, which is the exact opposite of endurance. It's the exact opposite of being mature and complete, lacking in nothing. When we're double-minded about our difficulties, it never leads us to joy. It always leads us to anxiety. It leads us to control things. It's a house built on the sand instead of a house being built on the rock. We are unable to stand and we cannot endure without that firm foundation. In fact, we will be so unstable, we will go looking for stability in other places and things that aren't God. And we will fashion idols for ourselves so that we can sleep at night. So his last point is, Don't be deceived. Remember. Skip down to verses 16 and 17. Look what he says here, kind of at the conclusion of this section. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation and no shifting shadow. Don't be deceived by your own double mind when things get tough. If we let go of our own perspective, excuse me, if we don't let go of our own perspective, then it's going to carry us away into idolatry. We have to trust God. Even when it doesn't look like or appear that God cares or that God wants to deliver us from our difficulty or our trouble. I'm still, to this day, I'm going to check my phone to see if anybody came to look at my house today. Anybody want to give me an offer right now? We'll, we'll, let's do a deal. I can put you in a house today. In Tyler, though. Even if it lasts longer than we could possibly expect, we still have to choose his perspective. God is not a God that is moody and sometimes gives us good things when, when he's feeling like he's in a good mood and then stingy when he's not in a good mood. God doesn't know how to give us anything but good. Think about that the next time you're in something that's difficult. We must not forget this. We must not be deceived by the worldly thinking around us. This is the only way that we'll have endurance for the trials we have yet to face. But better than any application point that I can give you or that James lists here is simply the example of Christ. So if you'll turn with me, we'll we'll finish here. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. And I want us to consider Jesus as the example of everything we've talked about 
this morning. The author to Hebrews in chapter 12 says this in verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with, there's that word again, exact same word as in James chapter 1, exact same word. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and, ah, oh, we're talking about becoming perfect in our faith, complete, lacking in nothing. Who for the joy. Joy. He counted the cross as joy. Scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider, have an opinion about him. He endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you would not grow weary and lose heart when life gets tough. When Jesus went to the cross, he said the same thing Bobby Miller did. I've got good news. I'm going to die. And it's that good news, the news that God, in doing the greater thing and giving us his son Jesus, surely will do the lesser thing in giving us anything we need when we face difficulty. The news that Jesus bore all the punishment that we deserve for everything we've ever done wrong upon himself with joy, all as it was coming down upon him, and he stayed there. He didn't move. He stood fast. He didn't seek escape. He didn't try to sue anybody. He said, not my will, but yours be done. It's that good news that makes it possible for us to stand firm when life comes crashing down around us, whatever it is. It's that good news that brings our faith into full maturity. It's that good news that leaves us mature and complete. Instead of just having faith in Jesus, we can have faith like Jesus. We don't just consider trials and difficulties joyful because it's something that we're supposed to do. Because of this good news, we consider them joy because we love the one who joyfully stood fast in trial for us. And therefore, we can join him and stand and believe that God is trustworthy no matter what. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 18. I'll read it very quickly. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power of God will be of God and not from ourselves. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body, the dying of Jesus, so that in the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who are, live and are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, 
so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke, we also believe. Therefore, we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed or matured day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which, we are, which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. In the courtroom of life's difficulties, when our faith is on trial, let us be proven guilty of trusting God even when it's tough instead of trying to control our circumstances. Let us prove our faith to be genuine through that test, allowing our faith in Jesus to become faith like Jesus and therefore our joy to be made full. That's the only way we'll learn to see pain and difficulty on this side of heaven the way my friend Bobby enjoys it now on the other, with joy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, for his death and his resurrection for the way he has shown us what it looks like to trust in you and to believe that you are trustworthy even when life is pressuring us. I pray, Father, as a result of the teaching of your word this morning that would engender in us this maturity of faith that James has talked about and that we would leave considering it all joy no matter what we face even the trials that we don't even know about. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.